you're listening to the Freewheeling Podcast, and I'm your host, Abby Mickey. Today, like we've been doing lately, jumping in between conversations with Lauren and Amy and I and interviews with relevant figures in women's cycling, I chatted with Carmen Small, ex-professional racer from the USA and also director in the women's peloton for the past couple years. She's worked with Virtue Cycling, Saratus at WNT, and next year she will be directing with Yumbo Visma. We talk about her career in cycling, the trajectory of women's cycling, the Olympic arbitration that she did in 2016, and lots more. Before we dive into the interview, though, this episode is brought to you by Zwift. Now, I don't know where you are, but where I am, it is snowing outside. Thanks to Zwift, I never worry about what the weather might do to my training. I can always get a guaranteed great workout in in the comfort of my own home with Zwift. They've got everything from built-in workouts to group rides to, you know, just jump on and explore a little bit. The changing season should have no impact on your training, so make sure you check out Zwift and everything that they have to offer. This winter, I am really, really excited to do one of the multi-month training blocks that they have on there. They have professional coaches and athletes that build training plans for you. There's one that is put together by Kristen Armstrong and Danny Rowe, so two incredible women in women's cycling who have achieved a ton in their careers. They built a training plan that lasts months, and Zwift makes sure that you don't overtrain by putting specific workouts in specific weeks and requiring rest days or making sure that you get a good rest day. So I'll be doing that. Let me know what you're doing on Zwift. We can jump on some group rides together. I would love that. And thank you so much to Zwift for sponsoring this episode. Carmen, how's it going? It's good. All the way from Spain. I think it's uh dinner time here and breakfast time for you. So yep, yep. <laughs> we were talking before we started recording about how how you were in Austria and you're living in Spain now. So a lot of big changes the last couple months because you've got a new gig next year with Yumbo Visma. Yeah, but I want to kind of start from the beginning. So before we even dive into the current, um, the the age old question, how did you get into cycling? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people heard me tell this story. So on repeat, um, fast forward, if you've already heard this, but I'll give you the quick version. Um, I was actually older when I got into the sport. So I went to university, um, Colorado state university, and that's where I got into triathlon and I was always, uh, an athlete my whole life. So I, I grew up doing sports and, um, Nordic skiing was actually my big sport. And then, um, I didn't do it in college. And so I got into triathlon and I really loved the bike part. If I had to train, I would always pick the bike. Um, and I was pretty natural at it. Uh, I don't know why, but I was, so that was a good thing. <laughs> and then, um, I, let's see what happened. I needed I was really broke. So I was finishing up college and I was doing my student teaching. So you're basically working a full-time job, but not getting paid. And, uh, I wanted to join this gym because it had an outdoor swimming pool and a really good coach. And I thought, okay, this is great. 
and but it was super expensive. So I found out that they had a bike team. So if I were to join the bike team, then I was able to go to that gym for free. So I thought this is a good idea. And so I joined the team. And then of course you have to do some bike racing and I had no idea what I was doing. So they kind of took me under their wing and um, showed me, told me kind of how bike racing works. Cause I let, literally never saw a bike race before. So we were doing a bunch of criteriums. Um, this was in Boulder. So it was really easy to go to crits and I did my first crit and I loved it. And yeah, fell in love with the sport. USA Cycling asked me to come to a talent ID camp and I was only triathlete there. So I was really a fish out of water in my short shorts and the uh, not matching kits. Everyone else had these kits and I was thinking, how do they have so many? And they are, are they washing them? Cause they wear the same one every day and super confused. And I remember Brad Huff was there and he, he, was helping out with the camp. He went on some rides and then years later I saw him at a track camp and he goes, yeah, I remember you, you were that triathlete with those really short shorts. <laughs> I was like, Oh God, thanks. Thanks for remembering me with that. But yeah, then um, I did triathlon still after that uh, talent ID camp for a few years, but I started bike racing more. And that's when I met my coach, Corey Hart and, um, he basically said, yeah, you can keep doing both, but you need to kind of make a decision about what, which sport you would want to do. And let me know if you're interested and, and I'll start coaching you. And, and then that's all it took. So I started with working with him. And then 2007, I w- signed with Aaron's pro cycling team. No, what was it? Aaron's corporate furnishings. I don't know if you remember that team. Um, that was my first professional team and I was still teaching at the time and then I went part-time that year and then fell in love with the sport and couldn't get enough of it so collegiate is this really interesting thing in the U.S. because a lot of women get into cycling through collegiate racing I mean I'm one of them Katie Hall uh Corinne didn't get into it through collegiate but she did collegiate I mean there's so many and it's something that doesn't really happen outside of the U.S. it's like really a a U.S. thing that, that all these women find cycling through collegiate cycling Yeah, it was really great. I mean, that's how I found triathlon. Actually, I did collegiate triathlon when I was at CU. Um, I think it's a great, a great way to find the sport or even for juniors to go into collegiate cycling and then continue with their education. I mean, I'm an ex teacher, so I'm all for education and and continuing that if, if that's a good path for yourself. But, um, I think it's, it's great to figure out how to balance being an athlete and a, a college student at the same time. I think it's a really good, a really good way to go to kind of experience more and not be so, you know, um, serious about the bike at the time. And then you mm-hmm. can always, luckily we can transition later into to being professional bike racers. So I'm all for collegiate cycling. It's super good. Yeah. Plus when you're, if you do kind of come out of collegiate and sign a pro contract and go over to Europe and do the whole professional thing, there's, you can still, you still learn that balance where cycling isn't the be all end all. And that's kind of, that's a trap that a lot of people, men and women fall into. That's, that never really ends well. I mean, in retirement, it's kind of when it 
kind of comes forward and is really a problem. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of life lessons you can learn by doing collegiate cycling. Yeah, I think so. For triathlon. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a good point. It's really hard to get out of the sport um, to retire. I, I, we see this on the men and women's side. But I, that's one thing I was really lucky that I was 27 when I signed my first professional, you know, uh, contract. So it was really nice because I had a degree. I had been teaching already um, for four and a half years. And, and so I was kind of set up to not base all my decisions on, oh, I have to cycle because this is the only thing I know what to do with. And, um, you know, I think also when you're into strange situations, you can always kind of look back and say, would this have happened when I was teaching? Probably not. <laughs> I don't think it's quite right. <laughs> How do I deal with it? You know, like if your uh, manager's uh, screaming at you for X, Y, and Z, uh, is this a professional conversation or is he uh, being completely out of line? So I think it's really nice to have the, uh, you know, experiences before um, you go into cycling. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate of being just an athlete when you're a junior. So trying all sports and, and not really pigeonholing yourself into one thing. So did you struggle at all with the technical side of cycling when you started, if, if you started so much later? Yeah, not, not at all. So I think that's why I became good so quickly. Cause it didn't take me very long to, um, and it wasn't because of physical ability. It was only because I knew how to ride in the pack. Um, I had to, or I would be dropped. I couldn't just sit on the back and, and, and come like, you know, I think it's much harder sitting on the back after, after every corner than sitting on the front or inside the Peloton. So it was more of out of a necessity that I became good at bike handling and being able to ride easily in the pack and get to where I needed to be than really just brute strength. So I was, I was pretty lucky with that, that I, I had that ability, but it was pretty easy for me. But I think because I'm just a really athletic person. So most sports I can pick up and do pretty easily. So I think this helped. I mean, Nordic skiing to cycling or to triathlon or kind of that endurance pathway, that's pretty common. There's a lot of kind of Nordic skiing cycling crossover, I think. Yeah, the endurance piece for sure. Like that's why I got into triathlon because I really missed that endurance piece from Nordic skiing. And I, luckily I grew up doing it. So I could always go back like in, in, when I was at, um, Colorado state, I would go and, and still Nordic ski. I would drive to go ski somewhere. So, you know, and I did a few, they had like these night races when I was living in Boulder up at, what was it? Eldora. And I would go up and do like Tuesday night racing, um, Nordic skiing. It was super fun. So I likely, I like continued that in my life. Um, I, I was super happy that my dad taught me that when I was young. So, um, and then, you know, I grew up playing volleyball and like, I was just any sport I could do. I was doing basically. So, um, I think it helped like with the balance and just knowing your body and spatial awareness and everything for the bike stuff. So how did you go from signing your first contract to being in the running for the Olympics to kind of being one of the best in the U S 
Yeah, it was definitely a work in progress. <laughs> it didn't happen overnight. And so in 2008, so one year after I was invited to come to Europe and they were doing like this residence program. Um, so it was five athletes that basically USA cycling took us under their wing and said, okay, these are your committed trips to go to Europe. And then they would bring in the sixth rider always would be more of an experienced rider um, to add to us. So to help us learn a bit more, I think it was super vital to my progress and success at the end, because like, I remember one race in the spring, I like, I had no goal except for attack one time and get away. Like this was the only goal I needed to learn how to do this. And this is what I was supposed to do. And I did it and it was successful. So it was like, not like, okay, here is Paris Roubaix now go, <laughs> you know, it was like, we took the, some of the easier races in Europe and, and some of the world cups we did. Um, but I think it was more of a stepping stone to learn. And once I was over in Europe and, and racing, I was like, okay, this is where it's at. And this is where I want to be. And this is what I want to do. Because if you would ask me when I was a kid or even in, in my twenties, early twenties, I would not have said I was going to Europe. I had never been to Europe. I was brand new at traveling and I had no idea of anything. So it was a great way to see the world. And I loved the racing. I was so addicted to bike racing. And so it was pretty easy progression from there, but I, I did almost quit in 2009. I got a contract with Michaela Fanini and uh, yeah, that was almost the end of the career. <laughs> and I, I really hated it. It was super horrible. Like at one point we were in the team house and it was so cold. It was February and it's cold in Luca in February. People think, oh, Italy, it's so warm all the time. No, it snows there. So it's freezing in this old house. And we're like, can we please turn up the heat? Like just to 18. I think it was set like on 16 degrees Celsius. So we're like, please just to 18. And the, the owner, and it's hard for me to talk about because I think Brunello actually is a good guy. I think that he's just a little bit different. And so he was like, I can turn up the heat and I won't pay her for your food. So what would you rather have? And we were, and you know, we're not getting paid anything. And so we were like, okay, yeah, well, can we have another blanket? <laughs> you know, so like that was, I mean, I look back at it and it's funny now, but I just, it was so much bullshit that I didn't want to put up with at the age of 29 years old that I was like, you know, I'm stopping like this isn't worth it. If this is what I have to do to, to go to the top, I'm no, I'm out. Like I'm too soft for this. And I don't mind the training, but just the situation with the team, I, it was so wrong in so many ways. Like we would get back from a six hour ride and every team ride was a race. So you're completely done. And, uh, then the, there's all these guys at the house, like the director and his friends, and then the Italian girls are making them food. And I'm thinking, bleep off. Like I'm tired. I want my own food. And now I'm going to go lay on my bed. I don't want to make these weird guys food. Like this isn't happening right now. So it was it, the whole thing. It was so, I have so many stories of 
stuff like this going on at the team that, you know, that team was there for a reason, for sure. A lot of people went through that team and it was a stepping stone to get somewhere else, but I was just not in a place where I wanted or needed to put up with it (laughs) or deal with it. And I didn't need to, like, it wasn't like I was getting paid a million dollars to go be on this team. I was getting paid basically nothing. I was using my own savings um, to be able to live. And uh, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm done. So I left that team. And then luckily Tina Pick from Cola Vida had called me and said, yeah, I heard that you're back. Can you come do the Southeast, Southeast Crit Series with us? And I said, I was like, no, I'm so done. She, oh, come on, Carmen, please. There's only four of us because I think they had some injuries. And I thought, okay, I'll go and do this because at least I know we'll win a lot of money. Tina was, it still is really good. But I, I think every night we would get on the podium for sure. So I was like, okay, I'll go and do it. And I went there and I had a blast. I just rode the front. I just did lead outs and rode the front. And I had a blast with the girls and, and, that relationship took off, which then I signed with Cola Vida for the next two years. So it was uh, a good way to continue in the sport in the U.S. And then I still went over to Europe with the national team. And then that would have been 2012 Olympics that would have been next. And I was on the long team for that. And I didn't make the team and I was fine. Like I, I wasn't one of the best riders for to go and I was okay. And I was still, I was still improving. And then, um, that year, 2012, I got a contract with specialized Lululemon and, and had the offer to go to Europe basically full time. So I took that. And then then so those next two years I raced full time in Europe and then, um, it was great experience. I, I can't say enough about the team. It was really, I had great teammates. We had great leaders, great staff. And, um, yeah, it was, I'd learned a lot. I really learned a lot, like to go to that next level in Europe and I had great results. And then 2015, I took on the responsibility of my two nieces and they moved in with my, um, husband at the time. And then, uh, we, they lived with us and I took a step back. So I didn't go to Europe that year. And I was, had the opportunity to race on the track instead. That year I, I focused on team pursuit, which then I hated it. So at least I found out that I didn't like it, (laughs) but maybe not the best trajectory because the whole point was maybe I would do the Olympics for the team pursuit. So on the track, and it was a little bit less time commitment than the road. Um, since I had my nieces living with me, that was kind of a big deal. And then I didn't like it. So I needed to go back to the road. And so I went, I transitioned back to the road in the middle of 2015 and then finished off the season racing for Bigola. Um, and then also in 2016. So that headed into the Olympics. So to your question, uh, yeah, it was, um, it's okay. I can talk about it and I'm all right. And I'm happy that I arbitrated. I'm still super disappointed that I didn't go. Um, I wasn't, I didn't get that opportunity. I feel like I was really robbed of that opportunity. Like that hasn't changed. Um, 
I find more what bothers me still the most is that I was the best person to go and I wasn't nominated to go. And I just felt like that was really wrong. Um, basically at the end, I, when I arbitrated, I knew I wouldn't win. I mean, my lawyer was pretty clear, like you won't win the case, but you may encourage change. So that's why we went in and, and arbitrated because um, it was really important to me that we changed some of the system because what I realized was all the way back to 2015, there wasn't anything I could have done differently. I would have never made that team. They had already decided the team, maybe not the last two spots, but the TT positions. Yes. And it, it bothers me just the system that was in place. And, and now then, and then that kind of encouraged me to run for the AAC role. So a lot did, a lot of good did come out of that situation of me not making the team. Um, but still I was robbed from something that I would have really enjoyed. And I think as now finishing my elite career and then, going into directing, it's something that I could have utilized to help other athletes if I would have experienced the Olympics. Um, on the other hand, I can also use what I learned not going and going through an arbitration and, you know, that story I can still use to help other athletes. So there is always a good side to every side. And, and I try to take that away for sure. I think that one USA side, I know there was a lot of bad words said about USA cycling this last go around, but I do have to say, I have to stick up for them a bit because when I came in, the selection community was completely different than what it is now. And I've sat on almost, almost every single selection call for the last five years. It's normally a four year term. Um, but since COVID happened, it ended up being five years the selection committee does a good job and they ask questions and they really um, want to select the right people for sure. I do have to say that they really, they, the first year, year and a half, this wasn't going on. It was more of like, okay, yeah, this is who we're going to nominate, go rubber stamp it. The, when they did all the changes for sure, the new selection committees members ask questions and they really investigate on their own and they, they ask questions a lot during the, I mean, sometimes it's two, two hours and we're like, okay, we have to continue this another day because people need to get off the call. So they take it really serious and it is a lot of work. So kudos to the selection committee because it's all volunteer and it's crazy because we have to select all the disciplines for world championships, Pan Am championships. Um, the Olympics alone is huge. Plus they have to go over all the selection criteria. So it's a, it's a huge endeavor for the selection committee. And they know this to begin with, and they do a really, to me, they do a really good job. Unfortunately, especially for the Olympics, something high stake, someone is not going to be happy point. And so, you know, of course things can be better always, but I think I think I or I hope Jake and I made enough good change that at least it's headed into the right direction and it will keep getting better and better. 
you know, we, we don't know, but we hope. How much change was there between when the 2016 Olympics were selected and the 2021-2020 Olympics were? Was there change within the process at all and within the the yeah. requirements? Yeah, it, it, for sure. It, it kind of like where is an upward trajectory and then it plateaued a little bit and maybe it went down a little bit towards the, towards the end. One good thing is that they redid all of the selection criteria. So everything was rewritten to kind of also across the board be more the same, which was good. And when Scott was in there, I think Scott did a brilliant job. Really, really good. I mean, to the point where people were like, okay, maybe it's a bit too much transparent (laughs) if it can be. So, I mean, that was like really a question we got is that like, is it completely fair because it's almost too transparent? And I said, no, of course, as the AAC rep, um, I don't think it can be too transparent because if you know, this is the reason, if you're honest with yourself, then probably you're going to agree. Is there, is there any change before the 2024 games? Yeah, they'll read, they will look at the selection criteria again. So I've stepped down now, like they've had the vote, the AAC vote. And so I'm Jake and I, Jake was the alternate. So we were, we were really like worked side by side though. I relied heavily on him and um, just with the, I mean, cause there's just too much to be done. Like you can't do all the disciplines and be knowledgeable about everything. So we really kind of tried to conquer it together and, you know, yeah, there will be more change. It's three years only, but there's still enough that if there's enough. And the other thing is, is come on, the athletes have to also be a part of it. I, there were so many times I sent emails out to maybe a hundred and some athletes and I got like 10 responses. So at the same time, sometimes I think, okay, you can bitch and complain about it as you want as an athlete, but if you're not really going to be invested into helping change, then you can't complain about it. You know, it was really frustrating to me that, okay, yeah, USA Cycling didn't do a very good job of letting know, letting all the athletes who were eligible know that the election was going to run again. I think there was a problem with the email situation and it went to the spam and most athletes actually didn't get it, but some did. And the amount that then, and then afterwards I sent an email out after I realized this happened saying like, if you guys really want change, who's, who's interested to run for the election. And I had a pretty big response after that, but it, they should be more involved then too, because I mean, how many emails did I send out in my time quite a bit that people just didn't respond to. And it was important information, you know? So at the same time, you know, how much are we complaining and how much are you actually doing? I think athletes need to ask themselves that, like, do I have a right to complain if I have no idea the process? So it goes both ways. Like it's not all USA cycling's fault. They do get a lot of a lot of crap, though. Yeah, some rightfully so, but other times maybe not. You know, so. Yeah. And I think that there were changes that were made. You know, with Scott being in there, and then with him leaving, um, that did, then it, that's when I said maybe things plateaued a bit. You know, so 
you know, I had brought up to USA Cycling too, like, look at the gender equality that you have in USA Cycling, none. You have any coaches that are women? No. Like, they, they, they can change a lot, you know, they need to change a lot. And I don't say hire a woman just because it's a, she's a woman, but there's a lot of women that are, that will do a great job, maybe even a better job of some people who are in, in USA cycling working. So why, why is it? Okay. Did they not get any applicants? I don't know. You know, like, I don't know who's applying for those positions or how they're running it, but you know, it just seems like they need to grow a bit more too with progression, progressing in, in a lot of different they don't help themselves. Let's say. Taking a quick break from my chat with Carmen Small, this episode is also brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Career 2 is a next-generation cycling computer that brings the power of advanced GPS navigation and intuitive software right to your handlebars. See your data clearly and in high-res, full-color, smartphone-like screen. The touchscreen display is beautiful and responsive and gives you an on-the-go flexibility. It's even water and scratch-resistant. Crew 2's advanced and industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities set it apart from other GPS options, so you can explore with confidence. Seamlessly import routes from Strava, Komoot, and more, and routing, rerouting, or drop-pin routing are all available with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. Hammerhead's new exclusive climber feature lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time. For a limited time, Hammerhead has an incredible deal. Buy a Karoo 2 at hammerhead.io slash trade in and get $170 when you trade in your current cycling computer. That's a rebate of up to $170 when you trade up to a Karoo 2 from Hammerhead and trade in your current cycling computer for only a limited time. The offer won't last long. It's only available on hammerhead.io slash trade in. That's hammerhead.io slash trade in to trade your current cycling computer for up to $170 off the purchase of a Karoo 2. Thank you so much to Hammerhead for sponsoring this episode. Well, speaking of change, I also want to talk a little bit about the Cyclist Alliance because you were involved in getting that off the ground from the beginning. Yeah. So that was a great change. I think I, in, in the European cycling side, I think the U S riders, unless you're racing in Europe, don't take quite an advantage as the Europeans do. Maybe they do. I don't know. I've been out of it for two years now, a year and a half, two years. Yeah. About two years. Um, unfortunately. Um, but I, I think it's a phenomenal, um, union, if you will, association. Um, that are really, you know, it's a great resource for women cyclists. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if go check it out on the website. (laughs) Yeah. We've had Iris on the podcast before, and it's something that we talk about a lot, uh, just on the regular episodes, because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about. And the cyclist Alliance is really good at, I mean, the, the mentor program is amazing. The resources that the riders have access to is amazing. So we've talked about it a lot, but it's, it's something that's really grown 
over the years an incredible amount. It's it, which is really cool. Yeah. It's nice because like what I said about athletes being involved to encourage change, that's actually happening. Um, and so with the writer council that they put in place and there's just a lot of good activity that athletes are making for themselves, you know, like the mentorship project, or, you know, even like, uh, there's still a big push for educating what do you do in the transition phase, but before retiring into real life, like how can, you know, what, what is out there to help you? Because the resources are amazing from already that association, but I think that it's can grow even more if athletes pushing and um, ask for things as well. Cause you get caught up on one side. Like when we started the union, you're just looking at certain things because you, you get so busy and involved. But if you, as an athlete come out and say, you know, this is a resource that I actually would need or more than myself, you know, come to them and suggest something. And also it, you can provoke change that way. So I, I think it's, I, the, the Alliance is, is really great place. I'm super happy it took off the way it did. And, and Eris is just fantastic. I can't say enough about her and she's really, uh, she does way too much for one human. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I, she must not sleep. I think not. <laughs> <laughs> she's a fire. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's, I would believe it. I've never seen her in the sunlight. So. <laughs> well, she lives in Holland, so uh, it's a good place for <laughs> vampires. <laughs> yeah, forget the the uh, Washington coast. It's yeah. Holland. That's the home of the vampires. <laughs> so you went from re- racing in 2017 to retiring to immediately going into directing. Yeah. How was that transition? Because I... I imagine it wasn't easy to flip the switch and go from being a rider to being on the other side. Um, yeah, actually it was pretty easy transition for me. Um, I crashed in Drenthe of that year and had a concussion and I couldn't ride my bike for a really long, I think I had vertigo for six weeks, but I didn't know. So I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I can't stand. <laughs> and you know, people, I, I don't know. I never, for some reason, I think we've come a long ways from 2017 into knowing how to deal with concussions because nothing was basically set up. And it wasn't until like, a it was an AAC call. I want to say that I was on and someone from USA cycling was like, you're still having problems, Carmen. And I'm like, yeah, they're like, this was like two months ago. You crashed. I'm like, yeah, I know. So that's when I went to um, you, uh, the USOPC um, in Colorado Springs, and they gave me treatment. And I met with the doctors there, and they they helped me. I mean, I went to like three therapy sessions, and I was cured of my vertigo. It was fabulous, but I still was never. I stayed there three weeks, and I made progression for sure. But I, I wasn't back to normal Carmen and when you have a concussion, you're really not in your right mind. So like I was in this dream reality thinking I'm fine. I'm going to go back to Europe and race my bike and I'm, I'm fine. And I'm going to start training. 
But in hindsight, I was not fine. And they told me not to leave. They said, you're not ready to leave. You at least need to do another three weeks here. And I'm like, yeah, come on. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm over like, you know, at first I could only walk. I couldn't even go on the bike and the rollers, nothing because of the stimulation. And so my only exercise was walking inside the campus. And then finally I got to walk outside the campus, which was great. Um, but it was just a really long road. And I went back to Europe too soon and I was trying to race. And I did this small race in Denmark with the team. We were having a camp and it overlapped with like one of our national series races. And so I, I did it and I did like the training. It was like team time trial training and I did it with the girls but we were all staying at one house and I couldn't handle it. I was like, the stimulus was too much. I just had to go to the room. I couldn't handle being around people. I couldn't handle multiple conversations. I had a real problem with the audio. So the visual, the sun, this, it didn't bother me, but I had a problem with the audio. And basically, if you think about being able to hear every little thing, ever in your environment, like all at once, this was what I was going through. And so I, it was really hard for me to be around like in social environments. And then yeah, on the bike, I could still ride and I was fit enough, but I wasn't normal. Like there was no reason why I was riding a Peloton. And so I, and I was getting massive headaches, massive, massive headaches. And so I had to go to Croatia because I couldn't overstay my visa. And so Croatia is a non-Schengen country and it's non-bordering. So this is a great place to go if you need to leave. So I was over in, in Croatia and I had actually a friend that was living there randomly. And so I was, we were out and I would go ride. He was do, like a teaching at university over there. And so we were riding and finally I just came to the conclusion. I was like, I have to retire. Like, I can't continue to do this for, for what, like, what is the end result? I'm not going to stay till the next Olympics. I'm not, you know, I'm not in good enough shape to win races at this point. So what am I doing? And the whole point was I would come back from the Giro. Okay. Like how many times did I do the Giro and do I want to do the Giro again? Like just to go through the motions to do it and because I wasn't well, I was really, I couldn't ride. I would get headaches like crazy if I would do actual training. So I, I told the team already before the Giro that I would retire. So they knew, but the public didn't know. And so I, when I went to the Giro that year, I went as like a, a pseudo sports director, like I was there helping basically our sports director. And so I'll tell you one small story of like condescending or women being treated, maybe not so nice. So I'm, I'm like, okay, I want to drive the car. If I'm here, I'm on to drive the car in the pellet. Like I want to drive it in the race because uh, how am I going to learn if I don't do this part? So I drive the car and it's, fine. I do fine. I, yeah, I was, I was a little bit nervous, but that was fine. I was good. It was no problem. I got through the day good. So then 
another sports director came up. Oh, you drove today. I said, oh, yeah. He said, oh, you did such a good job. I said, oh, it's my first time. And he said, yeah, I would have never known you did a great job. He said this right in front of the other sports director who was also directing at the time. And like that, I was on my team. So I'm learning from this other guy. And you could tell it like he kind of was not so happy about I don't know if he wanted me to fail miserably or what was happening but like I'm not trying to be competitive car driver with you I just want to direct like I I'm interested in it and so he he I think it was like the time trial the next day so I drove behind one of the riders no problem and I loved it I was talking on the radio and I really had a blast I think yeah it was one of the most fun moments of that year for me like I really enjoyed being in the car on the radio and then I then the next day I think he drove and then it was the following day and I said yeah are you gonna let me drive again like we should do every other day because we were doing every other day with the mechanics too and so he goes no I'm gonna drive today and I was okay so it was kind of a hectic day actually a really good day to learn because there was a bunch of flats like not from just our team but I don't know there was something on the road where people were having mechanicals and it was this technical circuit like the road was closed because of water flooding, like everything that can go wrong was going wrong in a bike race. So it was a really good day to maybe learn a bit, like, what do you do? Can I pass the Peloton or what, you know? So um, we get done with that day and he puts his hand on my leg and pats it and says, you think you're ready for this? <laughs> I, I tell you, like the, the Carmen inside was like, okay, don't punch him in the face right now. <laughs> don't do it, Carmen. Don't do it. And I will never forget that. That like, that will stay with me for life. I could not believe those words came out of his mouth. I just smiled. I was like, oh my God, I don't even know how to respond to this. So, so that happened. And I th thought, F you. Um, so then... Basically, I was like, I had never seen a race from that side. So the Giro was the first time for me. I had been in the team car a couple of times, like behind TTRs or randomly in, in, in different stage races or something that I had pulled out. Um, and so then I, I, I knew basically this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I had already taken the um, UCI director's course the previous year. So I already knew like this was the path I wanted to go down. I just didn't know when. So it was actually really easy. So it was in the middle of the year. It was in, in Sweden was my first time taking it over the team. And basically Bjarna had just called me and said, okay, Carmen, um, you're going to do the, you're going to direct the team now. And I'm like, okay. He goes, no, but for the rest of the year, okay. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I, I don't even know how to register a team. I have no idea. Nothing, not that. And so it was August in Sweden and I, that I took over the team and I finished the year with them. Okay. It was what only until September, end of September, because this was pre COVID times. Um, so we had a normal season. So yeah, it was kind of a shock, but, and then I made the team for 20, 
2018 and 2019. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I did everything and I learned really fast and I was way too busy, way, way too busy. And it like taught me a lot and that you need to delegate and you don't need to do everything. So super good learning lesson. And um, yeah, I was uh, definitely like sink or swim moment, but it taught me a lot. But you're swimming because you're, you're working for Yumbo Visma next year. Yeah. So super excited about that. Um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, yeah, I always wanted to work with the world tour team for sure. Um, and that was a goal of course of mine and my new career of being a director is to also work in the best team. And I, I really always liked Jumbo Visma from the outside. Um, I think they do a really good job. They're super professional. But once I started speaking with them more and more, I understood their philosophy was right in line with mine, which is, I think, what I've learned the last two years, well, since I've started, so since 2017, what is really important to me in a job situation, um, because that can also be different as a writer. So, you know, some things definitely overlap, but for the most part, I think I really understand what's important to me and what my philosophy is as a director. And that really has to be in line with the team you're going to work for. Um, And with Yumbo Visma, it's easy because they really have a great philosophy um, and they work together as a team. I mean, it's a company. They have, I think, 210 employees. So it's a, it's a big entity. It's not five of us, you know, it's, it's a bit, it's bigger than a normal team that I've ever been a part of. So that was also exciting to me because, you know, you, you need to manage your time in the best possible way, no matter what. But I think when you're working in an organization like them, you're really like you're held accountable and it's high performance. And that's what I really love because I can be all the high performance I want on the last two teams that I've been a part, but if there's no accountability to that, then what are we doing? You know? So it's nice because there's, there's people to help you. There's people to help the athletes. Um, So it's just really a good situation that I found myself in and a good opportunity. Um, And I'm super excited about them. And um, I've, I've went to their service course now just for one day. And it's just amazing. It's really, yeah, it's, it's absolutely an amazing facility. I'm super excited to get started with them. Having been in the sport for many years and kind of been on both sides of it, how much more professional are the teams kind of becoming? And also like how many more teams? Cause obviously specialized Lululemon was a very professional team and there's always been teams that have been kind of above and beyond the rest. But do you think it's becoming more normal within the women's teams to have more of this professional kind of outlook? I think so. Um, you know, people have their own opinions on whether the men's teams should have a women's team. Um, I think it's great. I think it's great because they have the resources that a lot of women's teams don't have. Also, 
yeah, we can learn a lot from the men, but also the, they can also learn from the women. So I think it's a give and take on both sides. And yeah, they have an infrastructure to do it. And we're still growing. I mean, women, women are still quite behind men cycling. And I, you know, I think we're in denial if we think differently. Yeah, we're becoming better and better and we're getting paid more and like this, you know, the salaries are getting better and our budgets are getting better. But bottom line, the men's sport on they're decades ahead of us. So why do we need to reinvent the wheel always? Okay, we can do things differently for sure. And there's different ideas. But I think taking advantage of that infrastructure that's already there and the resources is huge, you know? Um, so I'm a big fan of it. I think it's, I mean, even in the last three years, so forget about when I was a rider. I mean, I think there was like three teams that were professional when I was riding. Um, but I think, you know, now what, I think there's 14 world tour teams for next year. And they're all legitimate teams. Like sometimes you would be like, how, in, how are they even UCI? And I think that's getting uh, better. Like, I think there's less questions of like, why is this team world tour? Or why is this team a UCI team? It's that there are still teams out there that probably shouldn't be a UCI team just because they don't have the resources and the funds to actually be professional but then you have the same argument what are those teams going to do like they need to go somewhere and it's also a stepping stone for riders you can't just go from the juniors to a world tour team so we need a u23 program or we need some kind of intermediate place and that's where these teams are like i'm super sad that the uci got rid of that rule of the world tour teams going they can't go to point one and point two races because I think it created a really good opportunity for these smaller teams to start racing in Europe and they had their own races to go to because it's not fun also for a, a younger team or, you know, a non-world tour team, a continental team. It's not fun to go get your head kicked in all the time and barely finish a race, you know, like, Valencia, it's an early season race. You don't want to be dropped and riding behind. I mean, the things that I saw in some of the Spanish races was actually really crazy. But, you know, where are these riders supposed to go? Like, they're hanging onto cars just so they're not time cut so they can start the next day. This sucks. But at the same time, it's not fair for other riders who are not hanging on the cars, but they just actually want to finish the race. They're no threat to GC. So, but the races are so freaking hard because all the world tour teams are there. What do you expect? So there's no growing up process. Like we really miss that. Um, I, I mean, I don't have the answer, but this is what I... Well, it does seem like the the way that women's cycling is going right now, the top is being built and built and built, but there's no platform. Hmm on the bottom and no, none of the grunt work, like in the base of the pyramid has kind of been built. So there's, there is nowhere for, for women who are kind of just getting into the sport and just want to get into Europe and do the smaller races and learn and stuff. There's nowhere for them to go no. at the moment. And, and especially with COVID, I mean, a lot of those races are gone. Yeah. 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 So 
Yeah, I totally agree. It's uh, we're we're definitely miss something there. Do you think that the UCI team should have a minimum salary? I mean, obviously lower than what the world tour salary would be, but do you think that being a UCI team, they should also have some kind of structure in place where they have rules? I don't think those teams would survive. It's so expensive. So when I was with Virtue, something else I got to do was a budget, which was really good for me to learn how much it costs to go to races. Um, and salaries take up a lot. Like, cause I, I said, no, we're paying our riders. I mean, we paid our riders pretty okay for being a Conti team and, um, you know, not one of the best, but we paid our riders something at least, I mean, good enough to live off of. Um, but I don't think those teams would have survived. It's so expensive. It's really, really expensive. So, you know, and there has to be, again, there needs to be some stepping stones in place for these teams to be able to survive. And I think that if you start putting minimum salary, I mean, the salaries are crazy right now on the world tour level, like the top 40 girls, how much money they're making is insane to me. Like it's crazy over the last three years, how much it increased. So that's a good thing. I'm not saying I'm not complaining about that, but also how, can our sport do that? And, but it it can't just be so top heavy, you know? So what are these smaller teams going to do? The juniors have to go somewhere because they can't go to every world tour team and have a minimum salary. Teams aren't going to sign them. So they need to, we definitely are missing something in between even like two steps, you know? Okay. I also raced for free when I first started. I'm not saying everyone needs to do that. I think they should get, compensated if you're being professional but you know there is a point there is some sacrifice that you have to do yourself and some you know luckily I was a teacher so I had some resources and some funds saved up that I was able to do that but I think yeah it's an investment into yourself as well at some point um but also if you're called professional and you're not getting paid are you really professional You know, it's kind of this really weird gray area, I think, but it's not sustainable. That's for sure. Um, So, I mean, I I hear stories about some of these smaller teams and the budget they're operating on and they don't get food. And I mean, this isn't professional. Like if you have to bring your own food to the race, I mean, okay. Also we were, I mean, I can say also when I was racing in the States, we would stay at a, um, host housing and cook for ourselves. So, you know, I get it. It needs to be done. We did it. It was fine. And then at the world tour level, you're not, you're staying in a hotel and someone's cooking for you and you just need to worry about riding your bike. So there's a progression there. Uh, I'm not saying that every small team needs to be taken care of like a world tour team, but you know, there still needs to be some stepping stones in place learning you get you still got to learn a bit Uh, yeah i think it's it's good part of the process it is definitely um so what is your role with yumbo visma for next year how much how much hands-on are you going to be yeah sports director so we have i'm the only sports director and then um lisa lot who will also be the sports director she will coach some of the writers as well so we will be in the car together some and then we have another trainer 
um, who's coaching more riders who will also come to the races. So we have a lot of, and Ezra, the manager, she'll also come sometimes in the car. So all of us have our sports directing license. So we can, for the real important races, have one person drive and, um, I shouldn't say important races, but rather technical races that are hard to do on your own. So, um, you know, a lot of the spring classics with the driving is a bit harder to look at a map and, and speak and do everything is, um, so we'll come into two people a lot, I think. Um, and then I will be solo sometimes. So yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Super. Are you looking forward to the jam-packed calendar next year? Well, luckily, we are. We uh, part of the philosophy is uh, we don't need to do every single race. So we kind of we're in the process of making our calendar right now, and um, we will only do a single program. Uh, we won't do a double program with thirteen riders. It's a bit tricky, uh, and we just and that's the other thing. I like the philosophy because I really want to set the riders up for success, and they don't want to overrace them. And going to races is definitely important, but they want to balance it between like, okay, these are our team goals and these are some lesser team goals that we can use for more of the development riders and um, getting more experience. So it's a really good balance. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to work with the women there and yeah, it will be a, I will learn a lot also from the men's side and they really overlap with each other. So it's not like, oh, this is the men and this is the women. There's phone calls with everyone on it together. And um, I think there's a lot of experience to be had over this year. I think I'm in a really good position. I'm super lucky um, to, to join the team. So. Well, we can't wait to see you in the car. Yeah, I'm excited to get back at it. It's been since July, so. I'm more than ready. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and chatting. And yeah, me too. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.